0: there's no other component of a way of life that has a greater capacity to influence our health than the food that we eat.
1: Hello and welcome to One Bite, a podcast exploring the Australian food system. I'm your host Xavier Callio, a food researcher and sustainability student at the University of Sydney. This series focuses on the impacts of COVID-19 and how we build back better. We'll meet Australians working from farm to fork and beyond gaining diverse perspectives on our food system and how we can shift to more sustainable, resilient and fair food. So grab your knife, fork and spoon and join me as we digest the Australian foodscape, one bite at a time. Hello and welcome to One Bite, Xavier here. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Sinead Boylan, a researcher and academic focused on diet, health and sustainability. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation the traditional custodians of the lands that I'm on, and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Dr. Boylan has a Bachelor of Science in Human Nutrition from the University of Ulster and a PhD in Nutritional Epidemiology from the University of Leeds. She has studied the dietary patterns of populations across Western and Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, Australia and East Africa. Sinead's passion for interdisciplinary research at the intersection of food systems, health and the environment is reflected in her current roles as Executive Officer for the Climate Change, Human Health and Social Impact Node at the University of Sydney and Executive Director of the Sydney Food and Nutrition Network. Sinead also co-coordinates the Population and Health Unit of the Masters of Sustainability. Her research aims to identify ways to promote a healthy and sustainable diet with equitable food access for all. So welcome to the podcast, Sinead. It's great to have you on.
0: Thank you for the invite.
1: So what are you really enjoying eating right now?
0: At the moment, I'm actually enjoying a delicious coffee, which I made myself, I have to say. One of the things that I invested in at the beginning of the pandemic was a nice little stovetop maca pot because I did not know how long. We might be in lockdown for. So I'm still enjoying the coffee from the mocha pot.
1: Very nice. And can you tell us a little bit about your journey into food?
0: Yeah, sure. I, I must say, it probably started when I was about 16, when my careers teacher, who believe it or not was a nun, advised me to study agricultural science. And I was a little perplexed at the time, I have to say. However, I did choose to study a four year degree in human nutrition and then was offered a PhD scholarship on nutritional epidemiology. And some of your listeners might not be familiar with that term epidemiology, which is really just a branch of medicine, which deals with the incidence and distribution of of diet related diseases. And then i used those skills to study the diet behaviors like you said of populations across the globe and of course here in australia and i was really interested in making an impact rather than doing research for research sake and so i was lucky enough to start working alongside policymakers, in providing public health nutrition advice and i've been doing that for nearly a decade and like you said i also have been a coordinator on the masters of sustainability at the university of sydney where I first met you, and yes. in, the, in that role, that really ignited my passion in sustainability in its broadest sense and identifying strategies to support healthy and sustainable food systems. So, in fact, in many ways, the nun might have been right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, yeah, that's I mean, that's great, that's weird, but great. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, nun. So we're going to touch on a, on a few different things today, but I think it'd be great to start with food insecurity in Australia and maybe just a bit of an overview of that and, and what food insecurity actually is.
0: Okay. Yeah, this is a big question and I know we don't have enough time to go into it fully today, but I'll do my best. So I guess it's important to think about, you know, what food security actually is and, The most common sort of definition of food security is that it exists when everybody, all people, at all times, have both physical and economic access to sufficient, safe and nutritious food that meets their own dietary needs, but also their food preferences for an active and healthy life. And so there are really four different components of food security. I think the one that we most often think of is around food availability, having enough food, but there are also things to consider like food access, so physical and economic access to food. Also food utilisation, having the ability to store, cook and prepare food. And also stability of food is a fourth component, which I guess relates most closely to environmental sustainability in some ways. And it can be impacted by different climatic shocks, However, the stability of our food security can also be impacted by economic shocks and, as we've seen most recently, pandemic shocks. And so if we think about food security in Australia, uh, we hear a lot of the time that Australia is really food secure. And there was a report that came out by the Australian Bureau of Agriculture and Resource Economics, ABARS, a few months ago, actually in the height of the pandemic which declared that Australia is food secure and that we had nothing to worry about. And if you look at other markers of food security, uh, for example, the Economist Intelligence Unit, they would also point to Australia for being quite food secure. But if you scratch beneath the surface, cracks really begin to appear. So if you look at that government report, There are lots of warnings within that report with regards to environmental and social sustainability. For example, we may need more rain. We may need more workers. And also, if you look at the Economist Intelligence Unit uh, indicator, it actually places Singapore as the most food-secure nation in the world, which is really odd because Singapore actually relies very heavily on imports for food. And so I think we have to think about food security in this multifaceted way. You know, those reports really focus on the terms of food availability and also at a national level. But, you know, here at a household level in Australia, the reports are that we have about 4% of the population food insecure, which might not seem like a lot, but that's about 800,000 people. And if you dig a little bit deeper, you can see different uh, subpopulations are more at risk. So about 31% of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in remote areas have been reported to be food insecure. And also among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, very few, in fact, only 6% have been reported to have functional nutritional hardware. That's just the basic hardware to prepare store and cook our food which is really astonishing on top of that food can be up to 70 percent more expensive in remote communities in australia which is absolutely scandalous and then at the same time you know if we look at kind of the national food security at a household level we do see reports from for example food bank the food relief charity Indicating that 65,000 people are turned away from food relief every month, and almost one third of those being turned away are children. So that's kind of that explains the multifaceted nature of food security. And you know, even at a national food security level, we have a lot of threats to our food security in Australia with climate change and land and soil degradation. So I would really question whether we really are the land of plenty in australia
1: yes and and you know i think one of the issues that we have around food insecurity is that it it isn't regularly or consistently measured in australia yeah so it's that between 4 and 13% but you know that that comes from i think 2011 data mm. and it, it, the food bank hunger report just came out this week, Mm. you know, and and they were saying 15% of Australians pre-COVID, and it's more than doubled to 31% of Australians now. So yeah,
0: it's a real problem. And I think underestimation is really likely because at a national level, we tend to, when we do assess food insecurity in Australia, it's usually, you know, very few indicators are used to assess that. And there was actually some research published uh, not so long ago which looked at all the different reports of food insecurity in Australia and it ranged from anything between 2% and i think 90%. So it really you know we really need a more consistent comprehensive measure of food insecurity in Australia so we can measure our progress as we continue.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's a huge gaping hole. In, in what we're doing. And so, in terms of that COVID impact on food systems,
0: mm.
1: what else have you sort of seen or found?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, I mean, obviously, I referred to the government report that came out at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, urging consumers not to panic, and the National Farmers Federation as well were telling us not to panic, that we'd plenty of beer. So don't worry, that might have put many of us at ease, but <laughs> the effect soon wears off. But I think I, I observed a lot of the evidence just unfolding you know, through the media. So we saw, for example, if you, if you take the systems approach, looking at product plate, if you looked at the processing, firstly, we could see within our meat abattoirs and processing plants that there were clusters of, of COVID-19 uh, within those plants and obviously that has an impact on food supply and meat supply moving on towards uh, again i guess processing in some ways but food supply around um, fruit and vegetables we saw a lot of a, a shortage of workers so when covid19 hit our shores unfortunately many people did lose their job jobs and many did flock to the farm gates for for work however when the job seeker and job keeper payments came in uh, those paper quickly disappeared. And we were left really with very few, I think maybe um, it was reported Wednesday at one stage, 8,000 seasonal workers, which are largely from the Pacific Islands and Timor Leste, and thankfully could stay because of visa temporary arrangements that were made to the visa system. And we didn't really have any backpackers arriving since March this year. So there's I think there, there are some questions still around how we are filling those 40,000 harvest positions that are, that are required here in Australia. So that's kind of the kind of processing and production end. But then if we move into the retail end, we saw some retail innovation being proposed during the pandemic. For example, Woolworths, are, are kind of a, one of our largest supermarkets here in Australia, uh, proposes new automated warehouse. And... That was, you know, really great in lots of ways from maybe an environmental perspective. It was linked directly to a railroad, you know, and it also boasted the fact that it might reduce 26,000 trucks on Sydney roads, but that's at a loss of about 700 jobs, at least in Sydney and Melbourne. So highlighting that intricate balance between environmental and social economic responsibility. Uh, we've also seen then at the consumer end obviously consumers were panic buying rice and pasta and uh, eggs even hens and i think there was some farmer probably in sydney who sold about six thousand hens in one go which is unbelievable and then at the same time we've got uh, it was also reported in the media here that there were over one there's almost one and a half million people relying on food relief um, and you meant you mentioned food bank in particular, you know, they really struggled with, you know, massive increases in the demand for food supply. I think they reported something in May around an increase in about 70, 80% compared to pre-COVID levels. And so that kind of part of the food system, again, there would have been challenges because of physical distancing between volunteers and, you know, uh, supermarkets not being able to donate food because other people were buying way too much rice and pasta, eggs, etc. So leaving less for uh, for donations to food relief charities. And I think when we're talking about the impact on the food system, it's really important not to forget about those more food insecure communities, particularly the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. And At one stage, about 13 Aboriginal organisations in the Northern Territory came together and pleaded with the government to guarantee an affordable supply of basic goods, which included food, which is astonishing. And, you know, communities, remote communities in Australia were running out of fresh food just three days after their weekly delivery. And, you know, then because of the restrictions they were relying on those more expensive foods, which, like I said, could be up to 70% more expensive and, you know, restricted access to traditional foods. And in remote communities, they they rely heavily on carpooling. And, you know, many communities were traveling maybe two to 10 hours to the nearest supermarket, putting themselves at risk and other communities at risk, only maybe to be turned away because they couldn't bulk buy certain goods. So I think there were lots of issues in those remote communities that perhaps weren't as evident in Australia. So I think there's still some uncertainty around the full impacts. So we'll see how that unfolds over the, the coming months, I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that consumers panic buying, meaning less was going to food charities, but also people who are already kind of disadvantaged and potentially more food insecure, don't actually have the resources to panic Mm. buy. They don't have that money to stock up. So yeah, yeah, it's multi-layered.
0: It is, it is. I mean, you know, I'm pretty privileged to live where I do and, you know, just to watch people panic buying and buying too much rice and pasta was just, yeah, it was really, yeah, it was really difficult to watch. Um, thinking of more remote communities and what they were going through I had no idea
1: mm, mm. and you know there's also been some reports from Vic Health around families being under kind of financial pressure and and having to rely on more unhealthy mm. food choices and I wonder if we could speak a little bit about that kind of food health yeah and
0: and yeah sure
1: (laughs) some of the some of the some of the issues around around our diets and health
0: oh gosh yeah that's that's a whole other series I think um yeah I mean you know food it's a basic human right and you know while it's clearly important for human survival it's got so many other roles in our lives you know in fact there's no other component of a way of life that has a greater capacity to influence our health than the food that we eat. And it impacts it in so many ways from nutrient deficiencies. For example, iron deficiency is one of the most common here in Australia. Um, but it's not just deficiencies that end up on our plate, but you know, much deeper than this. If you look at our soils and their declining levels of, of zinc and iron, for example, However, we shouldn't just be focused on nutrients. We have to look at, you know, diets because we just don't consume nutrients. Our diets are made up of a whole range of foods and nutrients, and we all interact. And saying that Australians, though, we have we don't score too highly when it comes to <laughs> diet quality. Uh, we eat way too much energy dense nutrient per foods. We often hear. they're they're referred to but that's another word for junk foods and you know this is really a risk factor for many diseases like cardiovascular disease type 2 diabetes overweight and obesity the problem is a lot of the time that these foods are generally quite cheap and convenient to buy and tasty too
1: and I think I think you know the key thing about the food security is it's actually food and nutrition security. Mm. So mm. we have this kind of double whammy with it where we have people who are undernourished and not getting enough food and then we have a large kind of proportion of people who are over consuming and and overnourished mm. and and in Australia you know, the the kind of most recent stats from the Australian Bureau of Statistics was two-thirds of Australian adults are overweight or obese mm-hmm. and a quarter of children.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it does, it tends to be, you know, if you look at certain subpopulations, it would be, there would be higher rates of overweight and obesity. For example, in rural parts of Australia or areas of, of more disadvantage, unfortunately. Yeah, it's... um it goes back, I guess, to that definition of food security that it's about access to nutritious and affordable and safe food. It's, uh, it's something that we often uh, forget about.
1: Mm. And I think now the, the kind of burden of disease from our poor diets is actually like the leading preventable risk factor for global burden of disease. It's overtaken tobacco use.
0: Yeah it yeah it's incredible isn't it and you know i think there was a report which we might chat about later that came out from the commission of human futures which you know reported that if if we were to continue in this trajectory by 2028 which is only about 8 years away we'd have about 9 million Australians living with obesity and so we really have to think about the economic And social implications of that on Australia how are we actually going to cope with that and when you talk about those figures as well it's actually it's really I mean even though we're in the midst of this really fast pandemic there's a slow pandemic occurring in Australia with these diet related diseases and it, it just goes unnoticed because they're often quite silent and happening in the background and over time
1: yeah and I think there's this view that you know it's an individual problem that it's about individuals choices around food and and I think when you step back a bit and and you look at the food system a bit more holistically and start to see the whole picture that individual responsibility needs to be questioned. (laughs) Sure
0: I'm not sure whether you've come across the Foresight UK obesity map which basically is just focused on obesity so not food systems, but one very small component, and looks at the etiology or the causes of obesity and that map is just crazy. there are about there is i don't know how many factors on that on that map, but there are about three hundred different arrows which are linked to each other, just showing how complex it really is from you know a kind of from an individual level but also at that macro environmental level, so policy and economics and regulation and to kind of a more immediate environment which is you know where we live where we work where we play what access do we have to fresh affordable uh, healthy food in in the area that we live in so yeah it's really complex which makes it quite a challenge to to improve and to kind of mm. get to the bottom of things
1: and, and I guess that goes back to what you mentioned before about remote Indigenous communities not even actually having mm. the capacity to cook or prepare food or store food. So mm. if that's your situation, then you are choosing food that you can consume based on your situation.
0: Totally, totally. And I think that's where a lot of our interventions, so-called our know, programs, initiatives go wrong, where we focus on on changing individual behaviour through education or whatever it means, it's really, really difficult for a person to change their behaviour if they just don't have those tools or resources available.
1: I don't know if you saw the recent study about the healthy supermarkets in remote communities.
0: A recent study? No, but I'm aware of the... Is that where they've partnered with the Aboriginal supermarket?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. so... I think it is The Effect of Restricted Retail Merchandising on Discretionary mm. Food and Beverages. Yeah. And that was about Indigenous communities saying, we're going to do something about this yeah. at a community level. And interestingly, they, they showed it had health benefits, but it also had economic benefits for the supermarkets, mm. which is Isn't that very interesting. It's
0: fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did read about that somewhere. That it has been highly successful. So that's really great. That that offers some
1: hope. It does. It does. And and I guess another sort of thing that's come up during the pandemic is there's sort of a cohort of people in the, in the population who have been on income support for a long time, and the the boost that's happened with job uh, seeker has actually meant people are saying, I can finally eat fresh fruit and vegetables, which...
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty shocking, isn't it? And it, it's great, but at the same time, it's slightly worrying because we have to think about what happens when that support ends. And I'm sure we'll see a large spike in food insecurity in Australia if we did measure it, that is. Yes. But also just to say on that, the food price and healthy versus not healthy debate i think there have been some studies done in australia which showed that if australians were actually to consume according to the dietary guidelines that we would actually um be saving some money compared to the amount of money that we actually do spend on junk food in australia so if we were to eat according to recommendations we would actually be saving money and also protecting our health
1: yeah but and that I mean, then that ties back into whether you have access to a kitchen and cooking facilities. So it's very complex. It is. Another issue with food price is this kind of down, down, prices are down and are almost a race to the bottom and what that actually means for food and sustainability. And I know you've done a bit of work looking at sort of an input output analysis framework and also on some of the perceived barriers to sustainable diets. I wonder if you could. On those?
0: Oh, yeah, good questions. I guess, uh, yeah, I can talk about sustainable diets and sustainable food systems and the differences there if that would help. So, you know, we often think of sustainable diets, but that's only, you know, what ends up on our plates. It's only one part of the system that there's a whole there are a whole, other, there are whole lot of other stages before it ends up on our, our plates so from production and processing to distribution and trade and marketing, retail, etc. So I really have to think of it more holistically. So, you know, we have to ask ourselves, you know, was this food produced sustainably, processed sustainably, distributed and traded sustainably? And sometimes that there isn't a very clear alignment. So and if we take organic food as an example, there was some research that looked at the difference between organic and conventional methods of, of farming on the environment. And, you know, while you kind of looked at the on-site impacts, the the impacts were quite similar at first glance. But when you looked at the whole supply chain, organic farming, yes, tended to have a lesser impact overall. But Australian research using this life cycle analysis has shown that industrial food production systems, particularly for chicken, meat and lettuce, which were studied in this research, can be more environmentally sustainable than alternative commercial and civic systems. And I think what this really highlights is that it's really important to have multiple food subsystems for food security. Um, It's not one size uh, fits all. And referring to the research that we uh, just published Yeah, that was um, really trying to broaden our definition of sustainability. Much of the research which focuses on diets or food systems and their sustainability tend to focus on greenhouse gas emissions and our research really wanted to look at that more broadly so to consider the impact of our diets and food systems on social and economic sustainability and so we did that using input-output analysis as as one method of doing that. But there are probably a range of methods of doing that. But we just wanted to make the point that we have to be looking more broadly than greenhouse gas emissions.
1: Yeah, I think there can definitely be a particular focus on that. And I Mm. think because there are so many facets to it, it, at some point you have to go, okay, I can only focus on this one thing. But, Mm. Mm. you know, I think you sort of, touched on that you know a sustainable diet just switching to a sustainable diet doesn't actually equate to us having a sustainable food system Mm. and you know there is you know there's a few different kind of sustainable diets that have come out of sort of the lancet diet and the wwf and that kind of thing and Mm. you know that one size fits all doesn't really address a lot of the problems in the system i think
0: no, definitely not. I mean, and again, we could have another podcast on just those two pieces of research. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, um, yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean, it's great when this research comes out. I think it's it's really, it's highlighting the urgency and raises the conversation and the debate, which is fantastic. But I think we also have to be careful about what we're actually uh, telling people, because I think you know, people may take it the wrong way. And it just depends, I think context is really important. And that's often missed in so much of the research is considering, you know, physical context, cultural context and gender and everything else. So it's it's really complex, but I think it's good to be really Mm -hmm. mindful of that uh, and not take it with a pinch of salt and do your research when you're thinking about these things.
1: And just in terms of some of your findings on the perceived barriers, what was sort of a couple of the main, main things that, that came came through quite strongly?
0: I actually have to remember back to that paper. I've
1: got, I've got here, um, sort of conflicting agendas between stakeholders and a lack of awareness and understanding by consumers.
0: Yeah, conflicting Thanks. Thanks for that.
1: I've done my homework.
0: <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> I was going to say a lack of coordination, but that is yeah, I guess tied in with the um, the conflicting agendas for certain. And I think that that comes down to you know the uh, you know who who owns food security in Australia? Is it is it the Department of Health? I mean, they came up with the they developed the National Nutrition policy in nineteen ninety-five, so that's nearly thirty years old. And that was kind of updated by the Department of Agriculture and the Agricultural Competitiveness White Paper, which was very much focused on exports and production of food. But you know, one could argue that, you know, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, or Department of Social Services, or even the Department of Defence could have a role to play in and food, food and nutrition policy because I think really without a food policy which is also tied to fuel and, and water that we don't really have national security.
1: Yeah and, and I think a report that you worked on was the Commission for the Human Future, the need for a strategic food policy in Australia and
0: mm.
1: you know that's quite a comprehensive report and, and it sort of touches on the fact that there are at least 14 federal departments and agencies that govern or have influence over the food system.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it, yeah, it's very fragmented. And that's at a federal level. Then we have our state level and we have our, our local governments as well. So, yeah, it makes it very uh, challenging. And, I mean, the report does recommend a, a number of, of, of actions for government, uh, in particular establishing a a fit for purpose food policy sort of governance to drive national food policies and programs and having some sort of support within government to develop this national policy framework or strategy um, something at least um, to help
1: yeah it's actually quite mind-blowing to think that we don't have a minister or ministry for food you know we have Ag, which, as you said, is about exports and commodities. We have health, we have trade, we have small business. It it is very kind of fractured. And when you think about the kind of pandemic and the, the impact of that and people kind of starting to think about food security... But who who has responsibility for that? Is it the big two supermarkets? Because that appears to be the government's decision on this.
0: Mm. Yeah, it, it may look may it may look like that at the moment, for sure. I think it's it's important to to understand that it you know I think it is doable. It really is doable because it's it's happening in other parts of the globe. I I sat in a workshop in Kenya a few years ago on food systems and in that room we had ministers from agriculture from health from education transport and i just sat there dumbfounded for about a week i thought if you guys can do this with limited capacity and resources why can't we do it and i think also nigeria they've got a multi-sectoral national nutrition policy and even at regional levels you might have heard of the milan urban food policy pact where cities can sign up to become part of that pact and melbourne is the one australian city which has signed up to that where there is you know sectors working across at a regional level to develop healthier and sustainable food systems it's it's doable it's just not currently being done here in australia
1: Mm. yet Mm. yet and so that that report was based on the you had a food security sorry a roundtable on food security and that report sort of came out from that and was co-authored by a large number of people from very very diverse backgrounds and you know nothing is is ever perfect and you know we're trying to start and build and and bring voices into the conversation Mm. you know and I think that that particular report is is really bringing focus to those issues.
0: Yeah, definitely. It was fantastic to be part of that group. Um, There were some really great thinkers and doers in that group. So if you haven't read the report, I would urge people to have a look um, at the reports that came out of that roundtable. So that and and the policy report, uh, policy recommendations, I think it's definitely worth having a look. Mm. Um, And it's really quite recent as well,
1: which is good. Yeah, and I'll I'll pop some links into that. And one thing thing that is very interesting in this report is the conservative estimate of the negative impacts of our food system costing the Australian economy at least $87 billion (sighs) a year. So that's $62 Mm. billion from obesity. $21 21 billion from food waste and four billion from the loss in productivity from land degradation. However, the total mm. economic cost from damage to the environment is unquantifiable. Yeah,
0: it's it's crazy numbers, isn't it, really? I mean you're talking billions, not not millions there. And I wouldn't say that's even that would that, that may be even an underestimate if you think about you know, water pollution as well. Um, and if you think of other kind of planetary boundaries that we may be crossing in Australia as a result of our food systems, um, the, the number might be even bigger than at $87 billion a year. And that's just from, you know, the environment, also obesity. Yeah. But uh, yeah, again, there are other, you know, conditions or, or non-communicable diseases which are related to, to diet. That may not be covered in that, for example, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease. So again, yeah, it may be an underestimation. Yeah. Even at that 80, $87 billion a year is, um, yeah, it's astonishing.
1: Yes. And the fact that no government department has <laughs> real, you know, overall coverage of our food system, and we're talking about $87 billion a year, mm. conservatively. I
0: get, you know, I mean, it may be because I talked about kind of time, and with these sort of issues, I mean, there's definitely an urgency around fixing all of these issues, but they unfold quite slowly, especially here in, in Australia. They have, and we see with diet is rapidly changing in in many low and middle income countries, but in Australia, the shift has kind of happened gradually, and perhaps that's the issue that it's not kind of in our face and you know the policy cycle being only four years duration what can a, you know policymaker actually do in those four years to really look good <laughs> um, they might be able to decrease the prevalence slightly of overweight and obesity which would be fantastic but you know is that good enough for them and it comes down to how they um, where their values are at I mean, yeah I'm not sure where they're at at the moment
1: yeah yeah and and it is it's that complexity you know there's there's so many issues and i think our system of government doesn't deal very well with these types of wicked problems that are multi mm. multifaceted and and interacting with each other
0: it is it is really challenging and it's, it's it might be easy for me to say as a researcher but referring back to that research that we did looking at the perceptions of of policy actors within the government um, many of them, no matter what sector they belong to, did believe in that we should have healthy and sustainable food systems in Australia, and you know they could see a way of contributing in in some way or other. So that that's a positive. There's definitely a willingness there on on some parts.
1: That is, and there was something uh, you mentioned about the CSIRO and their research around diets.
0: Yeah, that's right. So uh, there's just been new research um, from CSIRO, which has, again, looked at the impacts of food systems more broadly on the environment. So not looking at social or economic sustainability, but focused on environmental sustainability. But at least it was beyond uh, greenhouse gas emissions. They looked at other planetary boundaries that we are currently kind of Uh, approaching. And this builds on work by the Stockholm Resilience uh, Institute, uh, which have kind of developed this framework. We've got nine different boundaries. Um, One of them, for example, is is climate change. There's one around uh, crop land, around ocean acidification, and what's the other one? Water. Water, fresh water usage. Yes, thanks for that. So CSIRO have have started to look at some of those planetary boundaries and have looked at the Australian diet and looked at, you know, if we actually consumed a diet in line with the Australian dietary guidelines, actually we would stay within those boundaries. And they've looked at uh, cropland usage um, or cropland scarcity as the indicator that they look at. Um, so, we don't pass that threshold, which is around 15%, I think. So, we can stay within the threshold for cropland um, scarcity and also for freshwater usage. So, it really shows that the dietary guidelines themselves, um, you know, prob- maybe without actually you know, environmental sustainability in mind when developing them, they certainly do show that they can protect both population and planetary health, which is excellent. We just have to. Do it. We're told basically, we'll all be fine. <laughs> it's really that easy.
1: <laughs> Just comply, and we'll all be fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really easy.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see. With uh, I know that the government is reviewing the dietary guidelines, so it will be interesting to see if yeah. that research feeds back mm. into those in any, in any way.
0: Yeah, it would be. It would be really great. I think. I think. Uh, we do have to start working. I mean, I've been working with that, that research I uh, spoke about, working with uh, experts in input output analysis. I mean, I didn't even know what that was a few years ago, but it was really a privilege to work with uh, people from a different discipline, and that's what we need to move, to move things forward. We need to have. Uh, people from different disciplines working together to solve these complex problems. And it can be tricky at times because of the use of language and terminology, but um, I think it's really important and it's a really uh, increasingly important skill to have, I think, going forward.
1: Yeah. And, and that's something that's definitely been part of this course is, is about looking at that transdisciplinary research because we yeah. do need people who understand things from different views and have different skills and experience to to try and kind of even begin to approach some of these big issues.
0: Definitely. And I'm also really privileged. I work as executive director of the Sydney Food and Nutrition Network at the University of Sydney, which is this really uh, amazing network of food and nutrition researchers uh, across the university currently, although we're also reaching out externally from psychology, to marketing, to physiology, to physics, to geography, and all working together to solve these complex issues. So it's really great that we have that happening here at Sydney University.
1: It is amazing. And hopefully the Mm -hmm. uh, budget cuts uh, will not (laughs) impact adversely on your research because it's needed and very important.
0: No, hopefully not. Um, I think we're, I mean, if anything, with COVID-19, in particular, it highlighted you know vulnerabilities within our food system and the need for this sort of research to tackle these complex problems, which COVID-19 is and its interaction with food systems. Yeah, so that, that would be my cell.
1: Yes, very good cell. <laughs> um, and I ju- just wanted to ask you uh, about the Food Legacy Project.
0: Yeah, um, so... My work on food systems and climate change, you can imagine, can get quite depressing at times, which is why I really try to focus on solutions and opportunities. And so I think in the, the depths of the pandemic, I thought I had to do something to lift me out of that. And so I founded Food Legacy um, really to kind of work actively with stakeholders across the food system and supporting a healthier and sustainable food system. I think a really good starting point is come back to what we mentioned earlier about food security in Australia and getting a better picture of that. I think it's important that we get a, a good picture of the current landscape in Australia to provide us with some sort of baseline measurement of our progress. So we'd be trying to advocate for a more comprehensive food security monitoring in Australia and we're also interested in identifying initiatives across the globe, of which there are many which have been successful in supporting healthy and sustainable food systems, that is from paddock to plate. So if anybody's interested in getting in touch or working with me, that uh, just let us know.
1: Yeah, and I'll pop all the links in, in the show notes for that as well. And hopefully some of the other guests on this series will uh, be some people to connect with. I think, you know, that's one of the aims of this Mm. is to bring these voices to Mm. a general audience, but also to each other and and start to build something. So
0: that's fantastic.
1: What is one thing that is bringing you hope coming out of this pandemic?
0: Yeah, that's a really big question. I had to dig deep for that one. Um, But, you know, I'm an optimist. We're really at a tipping point. In some ways, that might not be seen as a as a positive thing, but I also think it, it means we're at a turning point, um, which is frightening, but it's really exciting. And we we're having calls from you know, the top UN leaders, and from the bottom at a grassroots grassroots level, all of which has been amplified by COVID nineteen, and. I've been reading um a book called Active Hope by Joanna Macy recently, which and she, she talks about the great turning in terms of climate change and and that now is the time for active hope. And I f- I do feel the same way about our food systems, that we're now witnessing a great turning. And I'm really excited about the positive transformations that are to come.
1: Yes, that <laughs> that is good. And and I'm also <laughs> trying to be an optimist. Yeah. I'm doing my best. Yeah.
0: Good. good. Okay. We should have more coffees together, I think.
1: Yes. <laughs> I'll, I've got my little cup of tea here. I'm a tea drinker. Okay, good.
0: Oh, you but, are. Okay. Yes. That's, as, that's as good. That's as good.
1: All right. Well, that brings us to the end of One Bite for this week. So thank you to all our listeners. I'm your host, Xavier Callio, and I've been talking to Sinead Boylan about food insecurity in Australia, food and health, sustainability, and a little bit about food policy as well. So I'll pop all of the links in the show notes to the things that we've talked about and also over at the website at onebitepod.com. If you do like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review because it does help other people find us and it makes me feel like I'm doing something worthwhile in the world. See you next time. Bye.